Welcome back to your primary playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish sussman For those joining us for the first time, this podcast is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. In the final installment of our second season, we're taking you to South Carolina, the last of the early states, but first in the South. The 2020 race and the leading Democrats are moving South. In fact, former Vice President Biden headed to South Carolina even before New Hampshire's results were in. This is the first test of black support. And of course, African-Americans vote over 90% for the Democratic Party. They definitely have to appeal to African-American women voters who are true in South Carolina and across the nation are a core constituency. The race for the Democratic presidential nomination is hitting full speed today into new terrain. South Carolina may be the most influential of the early states for several reasons. The first is timing. Super Tuesday, when 15 states and territories will vote, is only three days after South Carolina. So whoever wins South Carolina comes into that day with a lot of momentum. Another reason South Carolina's primary is so crucial is the demographics of the electorate. As we discussed in season one, African-American voters, and especially African-American women, make up the most reliable voting bloc of the Democratic Party. As I'm sure you remember, 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. A Democratic nominee really can't win a presidential election without their enthusiastic support. Prior to the South Carolina primary, we will have barely heard from this pivotal voting group. But in South Carolina, African-American voters make up 78% of the Democratic electorate, according to Pew. This makes South Carolina the first test to see which candidate can garner support from a diverse electorate that's far more reflective of the Democratic Party as a whole. Needless to say, winning South Carolina is a big deal, and the candidates know it. South Carolinians know it, too, and they take their job very seriously. The traditions are strict, and so the potential for gaps is high. To get an insider's take on the pivotal role South Carolina plays and how best to succeed in the state, I spoke with the women organizing on the ground. To better understand what it takes to win an election in South Carolina, I spoke with City Councilwoman Tamika Isaac-Devine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk with you. You've been elected to numerous positions. Why did you decide to run for office in the first place? You know, so that's an interesting story. Um, It is a long story, but to make it short, I was a prosecutor and I was doing um, domestic violence and sexual assault prosecutions statewide. And um, as I was doing that, I learned a lot about the laws in South Carolina, particularly our local laws um, and how they really weren't um, holding uh, batterers accountable. I worked with the city of Columbia to try and write some grants and, and implement some structure there. And the city council did not fund our request. You know, I just thought that their funding priorities were not aligned with what I thought we really needed in the city. And so when I looked further at city council, I just didn't feel like our city council was representative of me. There were no African-American females on council. There were two women, uh, but they were older. And the youngest person on council at that time was 50. And at the time I was 28. So I thought back then, I thought that was really, really old. (laughs) And so I, I felt like, you know, there was nobody representative of me and what was important to my generation. So I decided to run and I challenged an incumbent and I won with less than 200 votes. And I've been elected now for 18 years. 
That is a true every vote matters story. <laughs> Definitely. Every single vote matters. Do you think that the issues that you ran on are still resonating with voters today or have the issues changed? You know, I think they changed over the years. Um, being an elected official has changed over the years. But I think that the, the basic issues are still really important um, about making sure that every person is represented and they feel their voice is heard, even if you're not going to vote with them at least explain to them what your position is, why you're voting this way. And I, I find that, you know, most citizens just want to be heard and they want to make sure their needs are met and they want to make sure that their representatives are attuned to their needs. And so that for that, if you think about that, that hasn't changed. You know, some of the issues have changed. Um, you know, of course, climate change is, is a lot more of an issue now than it was when I was first elected. Um, uh, making sure that um, you've got uh, you're addressing income inequalities, I think is although it was always a problem, wasn't as much in the forefront as it is now. So some of the you know the nuances of the issues have changed, but the general premise behind the issues I think are still the same. So this is a wild time to be a South Carolina voter. This presidential primary is getting very interesting. So what issues do you think are at the top of the minds of voters looking at this presidential primary? So for me, I think there are there are several, but I, I would say that um, right now, I think that there's still a lot of undecided voters. And the reason is because when you look at the policies of the in the Democratic um, field, the policies are just you know very similar. So it's really about who people feel like they can really connect with. So I think the major issues are um, is income inequality, um, diversity among representation is very important, um, economic uh, development, making sure that you know that you have policies that are good for everybody on the spectrum, and that you're creating jobs within the community that people and that we have students that are uh, able to go into those jobs. I think that's really important. Um, and then right now, I think the primary thing um, that I hear a lot of people talk about is, you know, they just feel like um, the current administration is is not looking out for everybody. So right now, I think people just really want to go back to having someone who is civil and that they feel like they can respect um, and that they can, you know, look at, even if you don't agree with their policies, you can look at and tell your kids, you know, I, I'm proud, you know, that person is is a leader and this is, they, they don't do things that make you cringe when you, you watch the news. So that's what I hear, honestly, a lot of discussion about. What do you think is the South Carolina slant on the issues? Like, how do these issues differ then from other early states? You know, I think for South Carolina, I don't know if the issues uh, are different as much as the um, the relationship to the issues, if that makes sense, are, are different. You know, South Carolina will be the first state with a diverse electorate. And so when you talk about income inequality in Iowa, it may be different than income inequality in South Carolina, especially when you think about the racial wealth gap. You know, in our country, there's there's obviously a wealth gap and we talk about it and the candidates talk about it, but it's heightened when you think about the wealth gap as it relates to people of color. And so in South Carolina, that is heightened for us because we've got, you know, we've got schools that are, you know, in our court or shame that still, you know, students are going there to learn and they're, they're, they look like they should be in a third world country. We still have hospitals that are closing because our state didn't expand Medicaid. And if you have 
income you can drive or you have insurance but if you don't then it's life or death whether or not you know you're close to a, a hospital so i think the issues are a little bit the the way the issues relate to us here in south carolina are, are a little bit different than they might relate to the, the the voters in the other states what would surprise listeners outside of south carolina to know about the voters priorities there that's a great question um i would think honestly i think what would surprise people is that um, you know, because we are the, the first state that has a diverse population, um, you know, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, black voters, you know, what are they looking for? Are they looking for this? Where, uh, who are they supporting? And as you know, if you look at our state right now, Joe Biden is, is doing the best among all the candidates. But, you know, you've got black voters that are, you know, all along the spectrum picking candidates are different. So I think, you know, people still think that, you know, you've got a, a voting block of people that will vote one way or another. And I think what, what should surprise people, or not should surprise people, what surprises people, but it should not surprise people, is that, you know, all black voters don't think alike. They're not going to pick someone, um, you know, just because they're African-American or just because, you know, they're a person of color. It, it, it's more about whether or not they feel like they have a connection with that person and that they can look at that person to say, yeah, I can vote for them because I feel comfortable with them. Where do you see most of the the groups kind of breaking out in terms of voting blocks? Like, is it is it age? Is it geographic? Is it by issue they're looking to be addressed? Like, where do you see those breakdowns in terms of uh, voting preference? I mean, I think the biggest breakdown I see or biggest division I see is age. Um, so if you look at older African-American voters, older voters in general, they're, you know, by and large, comfortable and, and supporting uh, Vice President Biden. Joe Biden has is got a lot of support in the state, you know, but the thing is, and I tell people all the time, the thing about Joe Biden is Joe Biden has a long history with the state. You know, people look at the fact that he was part of the Obama administration, but his re his relationship with the state goes back to being good friends with Senator Fritz Hollings. He's been friends with um Congressman Clyburn. So he's been here and he has a relationship with the state and lots of people in the state. So um, so there is that no like and trust factor and people in South Carolina know, like and trust Uncle Joe. That's just a reality. I think you find the younger voters looking to be a, a lot more progressive. So they're looking at a, a Sanders or Warren. You know, Bernie Sanders, I think his approach has been a little bit different. Nina Turner has been here as a surrogate a lot for him. Um, and so I know that I feel like maybe his strategy in the African-American community has been to put something, somebody who can relate more to the African-American community in front of them and talking to them. And, and she's a great surrogate. Um, you will find a lot more older African-Americans who do not um, do not tend to look at Pete Buttigieg, you know, maybe because of his age, maybe because of his sexual orientation. I think it's a variety of reasons. And I, I think it's uh, unfair when I kind of read things that say, older black voters aren't going to vote for him um, because of his sexual orientation. And that I don't think that that's actually true. I think some older older black voters don't vote for him because they think he's too young. <laughs> um, so I think it's really a, it's more of an age thing. Um, and then the second, uh, I guess, division I'd see is um, I find that um, more women are open to, of course, um, the more progressive candidates, the, the women candidates. You know, I've hosted... Um, uh, Senator Klobuchar at my house. I've talked to and met with Senator um, Sanders. Um, I mean, excuse me, Senator Warren 
Um, and then, of course, when Senator Harris was in. So I found a lot more women were uh, they were more apt to be excited about the women candidates. What are some of the hyper local issues in South Carolina that presidential candidates are expected to know about? Hmm. The hyper local, I would say um, understanding that, especially because you're talking about Democratic primary, um, there are pockets of our state that are are very blue. Um, and, and we call them the blue ponds in the in the red ocean. I mean, our state, you know, typically is very heavily Republican, but you've got these areas that are highly Demo- are highly Democratic. So we hear from and we see, as you know, we get all the candidates coming through here because we're the first in South primary. And so we get a lot of attention during primary season. But, you know, we tend to not see the candidates after uh, the South Carolina primary is over. And even when we have a Democratic uh, president, although, you know, I don't think they necessarily um, consciously mean to forget us. I think we feel like we're forgotten sometimes because, you know, we have a Republican governor, Republican led legislature. And so typically our state government, when there's a Democrat in office, they tend to clash with them a lot. And so we in the past have had, you know, we had our governor um, who still does, but our former governor and now our current governor fail um, refused to expand Medicaid. Uh, we've had a former governor who uh, sent back race to the top dollars that would help education. Um, and so, you know, we, I think locally, we feel like if we work hard and we get a Democratic president, we want to make sure that regardless, when that person's in office, regardless of, of, of our state politics, that the local folks um, and we'll get support to help address the local issues that we have. And so I know I personally have asked most of the candidates, you know, what are your remedies for making sure that even if we have a governor who says we don't want federal dollars to do X, Y, and Z, that we are able to get it, especially here on the local level. And so that is something I think that all the candidates need to understand is that, you know, that you're you're getting elected by people who are tend to feel we're we're not represented on the state level because we've got Republicans in, in at the state level. So how are you in your administration going to make sure that we as voters uh, get what we deserve, um, even if our state re- leadership doesn't appreciate it? So I think that's a very local issue. Um, and then I think the other real big local issue is understanding um, that we have um, an education system, um, and I know this is nationwide, but we have an education system that has really failed our students for years. Um, our s- local folks, our local school boards have tried their best to do what they can, but when you're relying upon state dollars, state dollars that are based on the property taxes where you live, then you have rural areas and you have uh, uh areas where there's a higher poverty level, that their schools are not getting the resources that they need. And that's a big issue here in our state. Our, our, our state um, got sued probably 20 something years ago, um, and they still haven't funded education. And so those that's a big issue um, that people want our federal government to be able to address. I do want to dig in a little bit on that dynamic that you had mentioned, that it must be such an interesting position for South Carolina registered Democrats that the voters are so important and get so much attention during a Democratic primary. But then once we move into a general election or an off-year elections, non-presidential election years, the focus really then becomes local government. So what impact do you think that has on primary voters? Like, Do you see enthusiasm 
for the Democratic primary declining? You know, no, I actually see it's kind of the opposite. I see the enthusiasm uh, during this time. Um, it, there's excitement because we feel like, oh, we're important. <laughs> and, I, and I think what happens is you get people who feel once someone is elected, you know, after, I mean, I get a lot of people say that, you know, after February, you know, we're not going to be important anymore. So you better get all your press right now or you better, you know, get your, all of your attention right now. So I think people are excited during the primary, but I think that that causes the voter apathy um, later. And that's one thing we always talk about, like, you know, our, our governor's race is the off year. So in two years, we'll be, you know, electing a governor. And, you know, it, it's hard to, to fathom that people get so excited for the presidential election because you get all these folks who are coming in showing attention to our state. But when it really matters, when you have the state election, the numbers are so skewed. I mean, when you look at and we, we just went through a, a pre, um, governor's election last year, and we had a great candidate. Um, and you think about um, or I guess it was two years ago now. Uh, yeah, it, it's now January. So it's two years ago. Yeah. November of 2018. And you look at the numbers in that uh, gubernatorial race versus the the numbers in the presidential race when you know Barack Obama was on the ballot. And it's vastly different. And so I think that's the dynamic that people get excited because we feel like we're important. But then that excitement doesn't carry on into other elections. So as someone who has run a successful race in South Carolina, are you seeing particular instances of anything the Democratic candidates are doing that you think they're really doing right? You know, and I know people don't like this. I think what they're doing right is they they come to the churches. I mean, you know, if you think about especially the history of the South, um, churches are where, you know, social change really happened. You know, that's where the civil rights movement was birthed. That's where, you know, the, the, the area that you talked about equality. And so the churches were very, um, politically engaged, um, you know, throughout our history. Um, and so now you do, you still get candidates who they come to churches and I hear people say, oh, you know, they need to do more than churches or that's like pandering. It's really not. I mean, I honestly, I feel like, um, when you go to the churches, they're actually talking to folks that I've seen several candidates. I've, I go to one of the larger churches here and most of the candidates have come to my church. And that is where they're actually getting to talk to people and really people see them. And, and, and honestly, it's funny because people look and they'll see whether or not they feel like they're comfortable, especially in a black church. It's like if you've got somebody that's comfortable in a black church, they're like, OK, that supports that no like and trust factor versus if it's someone that you say uh, they're very uncomfortable in this church, you're like, mm, I'm not sure that's somebody I want to support. <laughs> so that's one thing I think they're doing right. And then I think definitely uh, we've had several candidates um, who have done either listening tours. So they've done bus tours. They've done walks through some of the larger neighborhoods. They've done uh, community town halls at some of the community parks. And, and um, those are the things I think they're doing right because they're listening and people find that they are meeting us where we are instead of just holding something and us to go and see them. But they're actually coming to us in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And that's something I think that the candidates that are doing that are doing it right. And you've hosted many of the candidates as well, right? You've hosted them and brought in your neighbors and brought in the community. Did you see any candidates um, when they were in your home, you know, really with the community, either have standout great moments or some not so great moments? So, uh, yeah, I mean, several of, I'd say, standout great moments. I mean, he, he's no longer in the race, but Cory Booker, I mean, people loved him. And Corey stayed to the very end and took a selfie and spoke to every single person. 
Um, one person, um, it, one of the folks who were there, she asked a question and he could tell that she was Latina and he answered the question in Spanish. Everybody, that was like the standout moment for him there. And then afterwards he was talking to her and she was saying something about her grandmother. He let her call her grandmother and he talked to her grandmother on the phone. To me, that was a standout moment because it showed his, his, his being personal, personable, really connecting with people on all levels. And so that was something that uh, people really liked. Um, another standout, I think Tom Steyer, the kids really liked him. Um, and I, I, I can really attribute it because he has, he has um, commercials on YouTube and kids watch a lot of YouTube. But the kids really liked him. And when I say kids, I'm talking, you know, six to 12 year olds. I mean, these are young, younger kids. And they really wanted to meet him and wanted to talk with him. And he sat on the couch and he talked with them. And so to me, that was kind of a standout moment because a lot of us parents were looking back and look like, okay, these aren't people who can vote for him. But, you know, he, he's connecting with the kids and we, we like that. Um, so I think those were standout moments. Um, I wouldn't say that there were any missed moments, and um, but there probably were a couple candidates. We have a, a at the end, I'll, well, I always invite questions and answers. And um, there were a couple candidates, I think, that when they got questions, they, they didn't really answer the question. Um, and I know that that was noticeable to folks in attendance. Um, there are some candidates who are really... Um, you know, laser focused on what their issue is or, or what their talking point is. And if the question is kind of outside of that, their answer still is their talking point, which we know that people are trained that way. But when you're when you're really looking at what candidate speaks to your issues and you're asking a question about an issue that's important to you and their answer, you know, falls back on like a soundbite or something that you feel like, you know, is their signature proposal versus really answering your question. I think that falls flat. Even outside of the events that you'd held in your home, did you see other times that you thought the candidates really had some missteps in the state? You know, and I, I've shared this with the campaign, so I won't, I'm not saying anything I haven't shared with them, but, you know, um, for for us, I, I think the the rollout that uh, Mayor Pete did of his Douglas plan, um, I think even their campaign would admit was somewhat of a misstep. Um, so for, for the listeners who might not be real familiar uh, Mayor Pete, when he unveiled his Douglas plan, which addresses lots of issues, but it really hits to the heart of racial inequality in this state, uh, in this country, and he had proposals about it. Um, he asked um, for several uh, uh, high-profile um, African Americans to look at and comment on the plan. I was I was one of them, and so you know they called me and they asked, you know, can you read the plan? If you feel like it's a good plan. Can we use your name as someone who supports the plan? And I was happy with that. Apparently, um, the way it got rolled out, it was they they released a list of a hundred people. Um, it made it look like the hundred people were all African Americans, when in actuality they weren't all African Americans. And then my understanding, this was not my experience, but my understanding from some of the folks whose names were on the list, they did not agree to allow their name to be used. Um, I think that was a misstep. I think it was overzealousness of trying to say, hey, we've got a great plan that addresses this. We're really trying to connect with folks in the African-American community. So we're going to push this plan out and say we've got all these black people that you guys know and trust who says it's a good plan. And I think that the way it got rolled out probably uh, was it was unintentionally misleading. And I think that that he ended up spending 
a week to two weeks kind of explaining the rollout versus talking about the substance of the plan, which I think is really unfortunate because the plan itself, I think, is really good. And I would have preferred if we had an opportunity to talk about the plan for two weeks instead of, you know, whether or not he misled people as to who supported the plan. Both Senators Booker and Harris, two candidates who were thought to be able to kind of recreate the Obama coalition, both dropped out of the race prior to any votes being cast. Why do you think they never gained more traction in South Carolina? You know, I still keep asking myself that question, and it really is something that um, that concerns me because um, so I was one of the very early supporters of, of, of then Senator Obama. And I remember when we were going out and talking him up and I remember mainly older people, but a lot of people felt like, oh, he can't win. This country's not going to let let the African-American. And so they were not supporting him. They were automatically going with with um, uh, Hillary Clinton at the time. And it was disheartening, but I kind of understood it because I feel like people felt like this country wasn't ready for a black president. He won and people could see, you know, that that was possible. Um, And so I would think that we're at a different place. Um, I think because the pendulum swung so far um, from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, you know, people have uh, re-familiarized themselves with that, um, that fear (laughs) of feeling like, okay, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, support, you know, an African-American, you know, the same conversation is going on right now as to whether or not a woman could be elected. I think women can be elected. Um, uh, and I hate that we're having that conversation about electability of women, but I think the conversation is real because although a lot of people don't want to have it publicly, they are having it in their, in their living rooms and around their kitchen tables as to whether or not, you know, where is this country going and, and what, cause this country to elect Donald Trump, will that country elect another African-American? And so I think that because people want so hard to vote for somebody that they think can win, even though Corey connected with folks um, and Kamala connected with folks, I think they didn't get enough support because people just didn't feel like they could win. And they said, you know, let me go with the safe choice. Or what impact do you think it's had on people that we did start out with the most diverse field of candidates in history and of the the field has been whittled down to, I don't want to say the least diverse because we're just basically at where we were before, but a, a pretty not diverse field. You know, I think, I, I know voters like me, it disheartens you. I mean, you see candidates that are very qualified, um, candidates of color, women color, women candidates, and you're like, they're very qualified. You know, if you look at their resume alone, you know that they're, you know, they would be great. So to find that they didn't get the traction, um, I think it, it probably, it disheartens some people. But I also still think that, again, because the field was so large and people felt like there had to be some kind of, of way to whittle it down, um, people feel like, okay, now we're getting to a manageable number. Um, I think that seeing that manageable number not include uh, more people of color gets people to feel like, you know, we're probably not at a at a post-racial society that some of us may have thought we had when you had a black president. Um, but I, I'm I'm very, I'm forever the optimist. And so I'm so optimistic. I, I feel like regardless of, of where the nominee is, the question is really going to be about what that nominee's 
leadership and cabinet looks like. And, you know, I, so I still feel like there's lots of opportunity um, to have um, a lot more diversity in an administration, no matter who the candidate is, more diversity than we have in this current administration. So although it's a little disheartening that the person didn't make president, I'm not. I'm still hopeful that we will have some of these folks. We're, we haven't seen the last of Senator Booker or Senator Harris, so I think we'll see um, those folks in positions that still are meaningful and effective. I think that from a an, an outside perspective, you know, part of what's so interesting about this year that's different than past presidential cycles is that like every voter as pundit, like everyone's trying to figure out how somebody else is going to vote, because people are prioritizing so much the ability to have a candidate that can defeat Donald Trump. Do you think that, and so I think there's a lot um, being read into the way that the polls are going in South Carolina to really extrapolate out to where African-American voters nationally are swinging. Do you think that voters in this state feel that and are considering their vote in that way? I know some are. I mean, we've had the conversation about the importance of being the first in the South primary and being the primary with a, a, the majority of the folks who will vote in the Democratic um, primary are African-American. About 60, 60 to 62 60 percent of the voters will be African-American. So we'll be the majority of the voters on Election Day. So we've talked about the importance of that. You know, uh, everyone says, you know, Barack Obama winning Iowa was important, but Barack Obama winning South Carolina really was very important for him. So I think people understand the gravity of our race and and what that says to, you know, going into Super Tuesday. Um, so I think that's also maybe a reason why so many people are still undecided because, you know, people feel like, well, I don't want to make the right wrong choice. Or I have people, people say to me all the time, you know, what if I decide and then my person, they drop out, you know, I mean, like I said, you know, Senator Booker, him dropping out and, um, and, and Senator Harris, when she dropped out that early, that was a surprise to a lot of people. And so I, it's kind of like a breakup. People are kind of scared to give their heart to somebody because they're going to get their heart broken. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, I'm scared to say I'm going to vote for this person because I'm not sure they're going to be on the ballot on Election Day. So um, so I think they understand the gravity and they want to take it very seriously because we know that if they win here, that may affect their ability to go into Super Tuesday strong or not. Thank you, Councilman Devine, for all of your time. This has been really interesting. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I love talking politics. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Did you know Charlotte, North Carolina is preparing for 50,000 visitors this fall for the Republican National Convention? Which brings up a number of questions. How did the little blue dot of Charlotte win the bid to host the big red conference of the RNC? How does a political convention even work? How will it impact the city and the country? And yes, that means you. For those answers and many more, I highly recommend listening to WFAE's newest podcast. It's called Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, hosted by award-winning reporters, Lisa Worf and Steve Harrison. Listen to Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte. Find it on wfae.org slash insidepolitics, NPR One, or wherever you find podcasts. Bree Booker Maxwell is a rising star in Democratic politics and a champion for social justice. She is currently serving as Jamie Harrison's political director for his Senate race against Lindsey Graham. Previously, Maxwell was a staffer for House Majority Whip James Clyburn, served as a president of Young Democrats of South Carolina, 
and was appointed to the DNC's Youth Council. Welcome, Bree. I am happy to be here. So South Carolina, of the four early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, mm-hmm. and South Carolina, why is it so important that South Carolina is one of the first to weigh in, one of the first four? Well, so South Carolina, it's more of a display of what America really looks like. The African-American vote in South Carolina is of importance, and that's one reason why South Carolina is important, because one is first in the South. So you once you leave all those other states, South Carolina is next. And, you know, the South usually carries a lot of elections, and especially with African-American vote, as that is a heavy vote in any election, period. And, you know, African-Americans are, make, are like 28% in the state. So if you can carry that vote, you're pretty much going to carry the election, and it sets the pathway for anyone else who's running for president in this country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, African-American voters, particularly African-American women, are the most reliable and consistent Democratic voters. So should we even consider a candidate that doesn't perform well in South Carolina as a nominee? No, I think they should probably be brought down to the lower tier. I mean, anyone who performs well in South Carolina usually has the capabilities of winning the presidency. And if you cannot perform well in South Carolina, then you're not going to perform well anywhere else. And we saw that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. We saw that with Hillary and Barack Obama um, before that. So, like I said, South Carolina is a melting pot of what the country looks like. You have the high African-American, you have the Caucasians, and you have the Latino population. So that basically sets the tone for what's going to happen everywhere else. What would surprise listeners outside of the state to know about South Carolina voters? Well, I think one thing about them is they're looking for someone who's very pragmatic and who's very authentic. Um, What people love about Joe Biden is that Joe Biden is just like a roundaway type of guy. Joe Biden is the type of guy who's been around the block, and he has South Carolina ties. So it's not like he's just a politician who, who's just coming to South Carolina for a vote. Joe Biden actually has friendships and relationships in South Carolina. And that's one thing that resonates with a lot of South Carolina voters. So that's what they appreciate about Joe Biden a lot, and that's why he has a high African-American percentage of people supporting him in the state. What are those ties that he has? So, you know, he had a relationship with Senator Fritz Hollins. Um, when he was a senator, a young senator back in the day, Fritz Hollins was someone who took him under his wing. And so that relationship was one that grew and prospered. And then when, his, when Fritz Hollins' wife passed away, Joe Biden was there. When Fritz Hollins passed away, Joe Biden was there. He has relationships with Congressman Clyburn. Anyone who has a relationship with Cong- Congressman Clyburn, that means a lot as far as politics goes in South Carolina. Because he, if you don't come to South Carolina and talk to Congressman James E. Clyburn, you absolutely do not want to win. Can you give us a sense of what voters in South Carolina are looking for in a presidential candidate this cycle? So one thing about South Carolina is a lot of things are changing, but it's changing for the worse. Right now we have teacher uh, shortages as well as teachers fighting for higher pay. We have uh, people in counties like Allendale who are losing their jobs right now because of the tariffs. Um, There was this factory in Allendale where the tariffs went from, I believe, $200,000 a month to $2 million a month, all because of President Trump's tariffs, the new tariff thing that they passed. So people are losing jobs there, and it's crazy. 
basically. So I think what they're looking for in a president is someone who's personable, someone who understands their struggle and what they're going through, and someone who will do and say exactly what they mean. Because I think people have lived off of hope and promises for so long, and they feel as if they've been ignored. Like, we sit here and we spend this time voting for you, we spend this time supporting you, but what are you really going to do for us? Don't sit here and give us all these promises, and then once you get into office, you forget all these promises you made, and you forget about South Carolina, and you don't come back. It's only but so long you can live off of hope and promises, and people are ready for action. What are some of those things that they're looking for action on? Well, for one thing in South Carolina, will probably be jobs. Um, Another thing would be um, focusing on the environment, because in Denmark, they've had this water issue that's been going on for quite some time, Um, As of recently, the issue has been fixed, but no one should have to live in an area where they don't have clean, safe drinking water. So they're looking for things like jobs, um, health insurance, because when Nikki Haley was governor, she failed to expand Medicaid. Henry McMaster is governor now, and he, of course, is failing to do the same thing. We, We have a Republican legislator who will not expand Medicaid. So you have hundreds of thousands of people in South Carolina who can't get health insurance. One, they can't afford it. And then their jobs probably aren't providing them with health insurance that's good enough for them to take care of their families. So I think what they're looking for is that person who will make sure that their well-being is taken care of because their state isn't doing it. Their legislator isn't doing it. So what can you do for me if I have to go to these polls to vote for you? Something that we're hearing from a couple of experts in different early states, and I'm wondering if it's the same in South Carolina, is that one difference this election cycle versus past election cycles is there's been kind of like a nationalization of of the primary. Um, And so voters are looking, they're looking at national polls. They're, They're weighing those more than they had in past cycles. Do you think that's also true in South Carolina? Do you think the local traditions and, ins- and endorsements still really reign supreme? I do. I really do. Um, so, for instance, a lot of people who uh, endorse Kamala in South Carolina are now moving to Joe Biden. There's this group of women in Columbia, Lower Richland area, called the Wrecking Crew. They were very... Um, instrumental with supporting Kamala. They were very instrumental with supporting Hillary Clinton. And now, since Kamala, of course, got out the race, they have thrown their support behind Joe Biden. So I think endorsements really work in, like, southern states or maybe, like, uh, rural areas because a lot of times people follow the lead of their community leaders or their elected officials. And so I think that's why endorsements are still important, and they mean a lot. Like, right now, everybody would be vying for Congressman Clyburn's endorsement. But, of course... You, he has to have a reason to endorse you. And if he does endorse you, it's going to be at the last minute. So his endorsement means a lot. So just having certain people endorse you be from certain elected officials, certain community leaders, and even certain faith leaders is a big deal in South Carolina. There's a narrative that Obama had proved in 2008 that Obama had proved that he was appealing to white voters by winning Iowa. And then that gave the green light for voters in South Carolina to vote for him. Do you think the order of the early states influences the others? No, I think every other state is like a football scrimmage. And when you get to South Carolina, you're really playing hardball. So, no, I think everything else is just, hmm, we're just sitting here drinking our tea and eating our cookies. But once you finally get to South Carolina is when everything really puts the rubber to the road. What are some of the big swings or shifts that you've seen in the primary so far? 
So when Kamala first got in the race, um, everybody was so excited. Everyone galvanized behind Kamala. It was for the people in South Carolina. I just knew that Kamala was going to take it to the top, right? Well, here comes Joe Biden, and he gets in, and everyone forgets that this black woman has entered the race. She's extremely qualified. Let's go and rally behind Joe Biden. So I believe that was the biggest shift. So she kind of dropped a little bit after Biden came into the race. And then I think she dropped even more after they had the busing conversation at one of the debates. But that was the biggest shift that I've seen. And then as of recently, um, Bernie has moved up. And we also have Steyer, who's, I think he's like, he's polling pretty good, too. What is contributing to that is all his media buys. Because I was talking with some um, people, rural South Carolina. They see his ads on TV, right? And they were saying, because of that, because I haven't heard from anyone else, no one else has visited this community, that's the only name that I see. And that's the only person that I'm seeing, be it from my TV or that I hear on the radio. So that's who I'm voting for. So I think the media buys are helping Tom Steyer some. I don't know if they're going to help him a whole lot in South Carolina, but it is helping him quite a bit. I'd love to get into some of these local traditions, both for the young, fun ones, but I mean, some of the ones that are sort of like the staple Mm -hmm. South Carolina local traditions. So when candidates are campaigning, what are those that they have to hit? And are they screwing up? Like, what are the gaffes they've made? So the number one thing that you have to do if you are running for president of South Carolina is attend Congressman Clyburn's world-famous fish fry. If you do not attend that fish fry and put on a Clyburn t-shirt, you are not looking to win. Because you know why? You have people from all over the state that come. This past year, it was 8,000 plus people there. Every candidate had on a Clyburn t-shirt. So if you decide to skip the Clyburn fish fry, then you do not want to win and you do not care about that demographic of South Carolina voters. Another thing that people should attend is the Gallimus Ferry Stump. So that's a old tradition in the Democratic Party, and it's just um, basically a stump where candidates come and talk, and you're talking from a stump. You're talking to an audience of people, and they serve chicken bog and other um, low country staples because it's in the low country, it's near Myrtle Beach. So, th- you know, those are two things that a lot of people would expect for you to attend. And then the um, Democratic Party convention. That is a huge deal uh, with the Democratic Party in South Carolina. So anytime a candidate takes the time to attend those three events, lets everyone know that you are really uh, interested in South Carolina, interested in South Carolina voters. And you're going to do whatever it takes to get South Carolina voters as well. Now, let's talk about the barbecue aspect. So when you come to South Carolina, you have to eat the barbecue. The low country, I think they're more vinegar based. Uh, I think the upstate where I'm from is more mustard yellow base. And then I think in the middle is more like ketchup and vinegar base. But you have to come and try all of it. Um, and then a lot of people go to Rodney Scott's barbecue. So there's one in Hemingway, South Carolina. And then there's one in Charleston. So Tom Steyer, what he did for the Orangeburg County Cookoff was he brought the entire Rodney Scott restaurant from Charleston to the kickoff. So he's out there serving whole meals of barbecue. So those are just two well-known staples and two well-known barbecue joints that people know nationally because Rodney Scott's is actually ranked nationally with their barbecue. So you have to come to South Carolina and try those two barbecue places. I feel like if a candidate is thinking about trying to set up like the perfect photo opportunity, 
barbecues like a worst case scenario. You think so? Well, if you're <laughs> messy, it's messy, but you need to take the picture before they start eating, at least with the fork going into the mouth. <laughs> Bree, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really, really great conversation. Thank you. It's been my pleasure in cold, cold New York. But I am so grateful that you called me to be here today. So thank you so much. This concludes the final episode of season two of your primary playlist. I hope you found this a helpful guide to the ins and outs of the early states that play such a large role in selecting our nominee. With these states behind us, we're looking forward to what's ahead. To receive the most up-to-date information on our next season, and maybe even special bonus episodes, make sure you're subscribed to Your Primary Playlist and follow us on Instagram at Your Primary Playlist. If you've liked what you heard, please leave us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Wonder Media Network and the whole Your Primary Playlist team for producing this show. Talk to you soon. Emerge is the nation's premier training organization for Democratic women who want to run for office. Their mission is to increase the number of Democratic women in public office through recruitment, training, and providing a powerful network. In 2019, 213 Emerge alums won their elections, some of whom I had the honor of training. This group included 50% women of color, 62% LGBTQ+, and 48% first-time candidates. Emerge focuses on grooming the next generation of women candidates who will mount skilled and targeted campaigns. To learn more about Emerge, visit their website at www.emergeamerica.org.